I hope for a day where black and cancer isn't needed, where access to healthcare is equitable for everyone. And right now that seems really far away, but I hope that we're making a step day by day to be able to eradicate the need for us. Honestly, I could do with just focusing on my PhD for now. So that would be great if we were no longer needed. Hey, welcome to That Cancer Conversation, the podcast from Cancer Research UK that brings together the science and the stories behind cancer. Today, we've got a brilliant scientist who, by day, works to understand and develop new treatments for a rare brain cancer, and by night, mostly because of time zones, works to create a better future for black people affected by cancer and empower the cancer researchers of tomorrow. Hi, I'm Sigourney Bell. I am a second, almost third year doctoral researcher at the CRUK Cambridge Institute. The thing that a lot of people don't understand is that children's tumours and adult tumours are actually very different. I researched supratentorial ependymoma, a rare paediatric brain tumour. It's a brain tumour that happens in the front two thirds of the brain and is caused by a change in the cells of the ependymal lining. Those cells are transformed into cancer cells. Right in the middle of the brain, a little region that makes things like cerebrospinal fluid, it's almost like blood, but for the brain. Uh, So it has all of these different nutrients that the brain requires, helps your kind of immune system within the brain, everything that your brain requires, but hopefully keeps out lots of the things that are in the body, but aren't required in the brain. All right, because I actually have some stats in front of me. I know that ependymomas, like you said, really rare. About 30 children each year are diagnosed with it. So is the form that you look at, the supratentorial ependymoma, quite common as ependymomas go? So it's actually quite a rare brain tumour. So when we look at paediatric cancers, um, brain tumours are the second most common. Um, Ependymomas are the third most common brain tumour in children. uh, And this makes up kind of 70% of those. So although it's quite a large percentage of that fraction, actually it's still quite a small percentage of children with cancer in the first place. The children who have this tumour have essentially two options of therapy. They have what's known as resection surgery or debulking surgery, which is just go in and take out as much tumour as you can. Uh, And the second is radiation therapy. And that can only happen for children over the age of two. So those are their only treatment options. There are currently no chemotherapies whatsoever available for these children with this specific tumour type. So that's where you come in. Like, what are you doing? My project has kind of two main aims. So one is to develop a mouse model that hopefully replicates the tumour development as we see it in children in the clinic. So the way that we understand how this tumour works and how the cells are transformed in that process is quite hard to model within cells because if we don't understand which original cell type it happens in and all of these other things, we have to try and model that in vivo or in mice. And then the other part is in part of a collaboration that I have with a medicinal chemistry group, we work towards trialing new therapies uh, and brand new compounds that aren't in the clinic yet in our cell lines that we currently have and then we'll eventually move those into our mouse model as well and and see if we can reduce the tumour in the same way as it would be in the clinic, hopefully. 
Okay, so you're treating mice that develop the same sort of tumour that these children get, while at the same time also taking compounds and testing them to see if they can be used as potential treatments for this cancer. How does it work? How does all of this work? So first, let's talk about the chemotherapy development. So what we've been aiming to do at the moment is to take cells that have been grown from a mouse that hopefully are like the tumour that we see in children. And we've been testing new therapies, so new drugs. And I do that on a week by week basis. So new compounds are made every week by my collaborators in London. They ship them up to me and then I trial them. I see a range of different concentrations and look at if I add the drug, how what percentage of my cells die after 72 hours. And that's a good initial marker to see whether these compounds are working. And then we can start to look at which ones don't work. So we say, okay, this structure doesn't particularly work. But if they're ones that are promising, then we can do a bit more work on that to understand how they might be working and how we can edit them to make them even better. Oh, okay, cool. So you get these compounds, you test them on the cells of these mice that you've engineered, and then you go from there. Like, do you then put these compounds directly into the mice or is there something else? So it's not as simple as you put it into a cell and then move it directly into the brain. What we have to do is understand how those drugs might impact on the mouse, whether they get into the brain. The brain is a very well-protected organ because it controls so many things. So what we need to do is make sure that our drug can pass from either, if it's an oral drug, from the stomach into the blood and then into the brain. So understanding all of those things, and we can do those in lots of kind of fairly complex cell experiments first so that we can really narrow down how many drugs we're going to try when it comes to testing them in the mouse. Because we don't want to be putting hundreds, if not thousands of compounds through mice. We want to make sure that we've got the best four or five possible, which would maybe have slightly different structures. um, Because there's lots of things that we can predict, but aren't necessarily always how they don't behave how we think they're going to behave once we put them into a living, breathing organism. So after we've picked these five compounds, we then kind of bring them into what's known as our mouse hospital. So I mean, what happens in this mouse hospital? What's so special about it? So essentially, we want to treat our mice exactly how children are treated in the clinic. So we have mice that do have these brain tumours. But what we aim to do is go through the same processes as we would with a child. So we can do things like imaging to see where the tumour is, what size it is. We can do the reception surgeries or debulking surgeries to take out as much as we can. And then we move on to the next step of giving radiotherapy and chemotherapy and trialling our new chemotherapy agents. We look at whether this reduces the tumour volume um, and hopefully we'll get no tumour left and hopefully that these mice will will live out and we'll see a, a big difference between, you know, with and without therapy. Okay, yeah, no, I'm impressed by the mouse hospital. Well done, well done. Is this like completely new or did researchers 
before you have a mouse hospital for this rare cancer? There were mouse models available, but they were quite invasive, requiring lots of different kind of surgical techniques and lots of specialised science, essentially. But what we've managed to do now is to create it in a simpler way, but that hopefully, at least in our eyes right now, recapitulates the human situation in a lot more accurate way. When I found out that my mouse model was actually working and that it replicated a paediatric brain tumour in the right time frame, in what we believe is the right cell type, that was so exciting. And it was in the middle of lockdown and it was just amazing to have that news to be like, okay, great. That was a real highlight. And now that I'm doing the beginnings of the analysis and comparing that to human tumours, it's been really good to see all of these new kind of bits and pieces that are the same in the human as they are in my mouse model and moving forward with that information. And we're seeing lots of really promising compounds. So we're excited about what the next steps look like um, around developing some sort of compound for these children. At the end of the day, they don't have anything. They don't have any chemotherapy agents at the moment. So anything that at least works is a step forward. So I think I'm really excited about that in that it's not about improving what's already out there. We just don't have anything right now. So anything is an improvement in the quality of life and hopefully the length of life for these children. And knowing that something that I'm doing now may have a long lasting impact on children in the future, which is an, an incredible thing to be a part of. Everything that I'm doing as part of my project will change the lives of these children. I'm hoping that they'll have more time with their families, that they'll go on to live a perfectly normal life. And, you know, the aim is that they won't even remember that they had a childhood cancer in the first place, that they will go on to do everything that they had hoped and dreamed and live a normal life. Groundbreaking research into a rare form of children's cancer aside, you're also doing something that has, I guess, a wider impact on cancer and cancer research as a whole. Can you explain? So alongside my research, I also co-founded an organisation in the summer of 2020 known as Black in Cancer. So the aim of that organisation is twofold. So one is to highlight Black excellence in cancer research and medicine and to create and strengthen networks in that but also to bring cancer awareness to the Black community. So the trigger for all of this, so the trigger for all of this was a number of conversations that I had during that almost infamous summer now of racial inequality, but also thinking about how that impacts on the things that I do in my day to day. So initially, I was just looking for a community. I didn't know any other black cancer researchers, which was a challenge at the time. So I reached out on Twitter and was looking for my community uh, in people to be able to speak to. And that was when I met my co-founder, Dr. Henry Henderson III. And we got talking about our experience as black cancer researchers, one being you know, that we didn't have many people who were in our community that looked like us but also, you know, having the, who there was to be able to aspire to. 
but also on the flip side, being the font of knowledge for our own communities about cancer. So if there was anybody, an auntie, an uncle, a friend of a friend of a friend that was like, oh, well, you work in cancer research. Can you tell me about X? And I'm like, well, I work on pediatric brain tumors. So I can't really tell you much about colorectal cancer or prostate or metastatic breast cancer. And I was having to do the research. I mean, but why did you feel that was so important for you to do? To be it because you want to answer these questions that people are asking. So we became the font of knowledge for our own communities, but thought if we build this network that allows us to tap into those around us who do have this knowledge, who do know the answers to these questions, then we can get that information out and we can start to hopefully reduce disparities in some small way. You know, it's not just the the UK, because black and cancer right now, it's it's international. It's all around the globe. How did it get there? It's all over the world. It started as a social media campaign. So we had our inaugural Black and Cancer Week in October of 2020. So we brought together everybody we could find. We had an organizing committee of what was actually 15 Americans and myself. So it's a challenge to find anybody in the UK at that point. But what it was is that it ended up building into this kind of worldwide conversation. And we ended up having, you know, 80 million impressions over the week, which was beyond anything we had imagined. We talked about a different topic every day. So the first day was people introducing themselves. We had a day about cancer myths in the black community and starting to dispel some of those. So we had, you know, doctors answering people's questions. We also talked about the pipeline of black cancer researchers, but also how we remember the legacy of those who are black who have impacted cancer research, you know, notably Henrietta Lacks, but also the incredible black cancer researchers that have been and who are current, who are doing incredible work in the field. Okay, so Gorney, people might not know who Henrietta Lacks was, so I'll, I'll explain quickly. Now, Henrietta Lacks was a black woman in America who was diagnosed with cervical cancer in 1951. When she was being treated at Johns Hopkins Hospital, her cells were taken without her consent. Researchers found that her cells, unlike other cells, were immortal in that they lived and replicated continuously when grown in the lab. So her cells, known as HeLa cells, were revolutionary. Over the last 70 years, they've been used to develop the polio vaccine, cloning, IVF, work into HIV, numerous cancer treatments, and more recently, the COVID-19 vaccines. Scientists even sent her cells to outer space in the 1960s. Her cells have been one of the backbones of scientific research for over half a century. We now have a biotechnology industry that is worth billions across the globe. And yet, her family weren't even aware that these cells existed until the 1970s, two decades after she died. But it's only in the last few years that, thanks to her story being more widely shared, large research bodies, biotech companies and organizations have been put under pressure to try and right some of these historical wrongs. Earlier this week, on October 4th, 2021, exactly 70 years after the day she died, her estate sued biotechnology company Thermo Fisher Scientific 
seeking both financial compensation from the biotech company, as well as an agreement that they won't use their cells in the future for research without first obtaining permission from her family. But one of the challenges in getting justice is making sure that as many people as possible know her story. So Sigourney, what have been some of the challenges that you've faced with Black in Cancer? There have definitely been a whole range of challenges. One of them being, I'm trying to do a PhD at the same time. And turns out that's a lot of work, as is co-founding an organization, which is transatlantic. And trying to keep up with everybody at the same time and have meetings and things. So that has been a challenge. Initially, particularly during Black and Cancer Week, the inaugural one in 2020, there were a lot of hurtful comments um, and people who didn't understand why we were doing what we were doing, talking about how cancer impacts on everyone, which is absolutely true. But I'm also very keenly aware of the fact that although cancer does affect everybody, no matter where they're from, what shouldn't be happening is people with exactly the same cancer type being either diagnosed later because of inequalities in healthcare, but also then not being treated in the correct ways, not having access to the right medicines, whether that's in the UK or the US or other countries, and therefore not surviving their cancer when they should have done. And that's the thing that hurts me. And that's the thing that I am working on and hoping to improve. I mean, no one can say that this isn't a really good thing that you're doing. And, you know, you've got 2021 Black and Cancer Week coming up soon. Like, it's approaching, right? Rapidly approaching and is from the 11th to the 15th of October. It's the next step up from last year's. So a lot of what we're doing is allowing people to network and build their networks. So lots of people who have come into cancer research over the last year. So allowing them to have that visibility of other black cancer researchers to see what they're doing and to connect with people and people who understand their experience, but also to continue to push that information about cancer, about diagnosis, about what happens after your diagnosis to the community and helping people to advocate for themselves within the clinic, because that's not always easy and you don't always know the questions to ask. So really giving people that source of information on that and how to be able to make sure that they're getting the best healthcare possible. So for you personally, like what's been one of the highlights? So one of the most rewarding things has been developing the Black in Cancer mentorship program. So we have a nine-month mentorship program that starts this October, allowing students to be mentored by other either postdocs or by people in industry to build their confidence, to help them to understand what a career in cancer research might look like but then they also get a fully paid lab placement for eight weeks at the end of it learning what it's like and getting that experience so that they're then set up for whatever they want to pursue next whether that's a PhD or going into industry whatever that might look like for them and I'm so proud of what we've managed to do in terms of that. So what's been really brilliant about the mentorship program is the support that we've had particularly from CRUK in supporting these students, providing places for them to be able to do the lab placements and also funding that. 
which has been absolutely fantastic. And we, we couldn't have brought it this far without them. So not only are you trying to give people more knowledge, you know, educate them about cancer and dispelling some cancer myths, you're also trying to create the cancer researchers of the future. I mean, this is undoubtedly a good thing. So, I mean, it must be really annoying when you hear hateful comments or, you know, telling people that we don't need black in cancer. It's not necessary. I hope for a day where black in cancer isn't needed, where access to healthcare is equitable for everyone. And right now that seems really far away. But I hope that we're making a step day by day to be able to eradicate the need for us. Honestly, I could do with just focusing on my PhD for now. So that would be great if we were no longer needed. But for the time that we are, I will continue to work and to advocate for not only black cancer researchers and allowing them to do whatever it is that they want to do within this field, but also allowing people to learn how to advocate for themselves and educating those within the medical community about how disparities exist and what we need to start doing about it. All right, Sigourney, I won't take up too much of your time because you're a very busy person. Where can people find you online in advance of Black and Cancer Week? Like, where, how can they get involved? Where can they find you? Where can they find Black and Cancer? I am on Twitter, Instagram, and various other social media that I can't think of off the top of my head. At is at 628, so at S-I-G-G-S-2-8. But they are also welcome to find Black and Cancer. So our website is just blackandcancer.com. But also we are at Black and Cancer on all social media platforms and are making a foray into TikTok at some point in the near future. That's it for this episode of That Cancer Conversation. We were produced in Cancer Research UK's digital news team, and music today comes from Ketzer. If you've come this far and want to learn a bit more about black and cancer, you can find some more information in the show notes. To be the first to listen to our next episode, subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got some time, leave a review. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.